0: What's up, family? You are tuned into Law & Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. This is Resistance in Residence, where we profile artists using their gifts to change the world. This week's Resistance and Residence artist is actor, comedian, radio host, director, playwright, and social justice warrior, and my friend, and my brother, and my comrade, Donald Lacey. Donald, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Oh, listen, Queen, you are one of my shiros. You know how much I love you. We go way back. I'm so proud of you, and it's always an honor to catch up with you, sweetheart. I am am
0: sad and sorry. Well, not sad actually, because this is good timing. But I. I when I was thought about it, I was like, "Why is, am I just now having Donald on as a resistance and residence artist because you exemplify the types of folks that we want to profile um, in these segments? I want to start with a little bit about you and specifically where and how you grew up and what your family was
1: like Well, thank you. Um, I, I you know I always tell the youngsters I mentored through love life. I wish you could have grown up in the Oakland that I grew up." I had a mother, a father, I had uncles, I had my grandmothers, my grandfather, I had a lot of hands laid on me. And both my parents were into the arts. Uh, my mother was a classically trained pianist who gave up that career to raise a family. And my father was a, a global technician, one of the first, if not the first Black global technician who They kind of pioneered closed circuit TV in the late 50s, early 60s. But on the side, he was a jazz drummer. So I was always around the arts. (laughs) And when we were kids, we used to put on talent shows in the garage. And I was the director at Five Cat. And my sister, who I think you've met, she's still bitter that I made her audition. I'm like, that was like, 50 something years ago get over it please but (laughs) you know but and uh we were just and and i was i was just having this discussion with a young actor of mine Uh, my mother introduced me to paul robeson when i was five years old Mm. and i think we were watching emperor jones on tv and i heard that deep baritone based voice and And then she was just telling me about how he sacrificed his career for the betterment of human beings, you know, for laborers, for black folks. And that always struck me. And I said, that's the kind of artist I want to be that always does some type of art uh, that moves the human race forward. I mean, nothing against, you know, Oklahoma, Bye Bye Birdie and all of that. You know, fun for fun's sake, but I've never been about that. So, and I had the great fortune to work with some great artists. John Doyle was my first director, and people like that, and Rodessa Jones and Margot Hall, who Mm. is my other sister, who's incredible talent, and she's so amazing in this play we're doing now. And, uh, you know, that's, I've just tried to stay to the course, and I've been fortunate enough to stay busy.
0: Donald, you are what folks call these days a multi-hyphenated artist. Uh, You're a comedian, you're an actor, you're a playwright, you're a director. Which medium did you discover first?
1: Great question. Um, The first medium that I really fell in love with as a kid was radio. Uh, I used to listen to KDIA, Boss of the Bay, Lucky 13, KSOL, when Sly Stone was the DJ there. And I said, oh, man, I want to be on radio. And then um, as I started college at San Francisco State, uh, I got uh, over at KPOO Radio. And that was really the first professional, if you will, medium. But then right after that, I got cast uh, in my first play, which was written by uh, Jamal Williams about a family that went to Jonestown. And uh, so, yeah, live theater. Uh, was probably the first. And then I was lucky enough to get cast in a television show with Robert Hooks, who is just a prince of a human being. Uh, he he educated me so much about not only the craft, but the business. And Lorenz Tate was on that show. It was his first TV appearance. I think he was uh, 13 at the time. And uh, yeah, man. So I, I mean, that's why I am hyphenated, because... You know, as an artist yourself, you know you can never really wait for the phone to ring, and I've never been that person. I've always produced my own stuff, other people's stuff, so I just try to fill in the gaps when other people aren't calling me, so I can keep money coming in. hmm
0: hmm Black folks, we have a a deeply rooted tradition of laughing through our pain. Like that's mm. how I think we've survived. We've sang and we've laughed through our pain, right, for yes. the last four hundred plus years. Talk about comedy as both a survival strategy, but also as a tool
1: for social commentary and change. Wow, that is another great, great question. And I I go back to when I first saw I was exposed to the great Richard Pryor who, to me, epitomized laughter through pain. And I was watching this old show again, Hollywood Squares, and I didn't know who he was, and he wasn't the Richard Pryor then. Uh, And he was uh, playing for a charity. And they said, Mr. Pryor, what's your charity? And he said, the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. And, of course, growing up in Oakland, I was was all – so I fell in love with – I'd never heard him tell a joke, but I was like, I love that dude, right? And then as I got older and started listening to that In Words Crazy and how he talked about, you know, his mother uh, running a a joy house, if you will. And, you know, uh, about his relationship with winos and his relationship with drugs and all of these hurtful things. But he made you uproariously laugh. And the thing about his genius is so incredible. I've heard all of his albums. I could almost quote them word for word, but I still laugh. And some of it is, the, you know, when he did that classic bit about being burnt in the fire and he made it hilarious. And It is crack cocaine uh, addiction, how he made that hilarious. So he was my role model for taking the pain I was feeling and trying to not only make people laugh, but also to make it a cathartic experience for myself. My father, who was the greatest man I ever knew, always told me he said, son, no matter what's happening in this life. Never take it, or more importantly, yourself, too serious. So I've always tried to live by that creed.
0: On October 20th, 1997, you suffered a tragedy no parent can imagine, in, in telling, unless it happens to them. Your daughter Lois Shea was killed in West Oakland. Can you talk to us about what happened? I always feel like uplifting the story is important, but also about how that changed your life.
1: Uh, yeah, uh, you know, Kat... Uh, There's an African proverb that says, uh, children before they're born choose their parents. And I really think that my daughter chose me to for several reasons. Um, She was just an incredible spirit, a luminous, powerful, loving spirit. I delivered her in the car, as you know, while driving down 580 freeway. (laughs) <laughs> I love the ha- story. Tell the story. Ha- Tell the story. Well, you know, it was about three in the morning and her mom <laughs> elbowed me and said, Look, you know, I'm having- it's time. My water broke. I was cool. You know, I had my little hoopty Toyota hatchback. I laid her in the passenger seat and we're driving. We just got on 580 over there by Nolan Park. And she goes, I'm having this baby. And I said, yeah, I know. That's why we're in the house." But she goes, no, I'm having this baby now. And I reached between her legs. I had my left hand on the wheel, steering wheel. <laughs> And I felt the little crown of her head. And for some reason, Kat, I don't even know why I was so calm because she was panicking. She was like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? Pull over, pull over. I said, no, let's just keep making And I just tried to keep her calm. And then I just pulled and pulled and she came out to her shoulders. And then she literally dove on the floor of the car and made a splat. And then her mom just lost it. Oh, my God, the baby's on the floor. The baby's on the floor. (laughs) And I said, with all the cool, I said, said, well, honey, pick the baby up because I'm still driving. And (laughs) she picked her up. And I looked at her. And it was like, it was like I saw the face of God. She was perfect. She was just amazingly beautiful. And then right a little bit after that, Isn't She Lovely came on the radio. And I was like, yeah, baby. Stevie is serenading our, <laughs> our child. And then you know she was going, cut the cord, cut the cord. And I said, no, we can't cut the cord. Let's... And then I was so busy looking at her, I missed the last exit before you get to the Bay Bridge. <laughs> and then I started panicking, I started cussing. I was like, oh, and then she got calm. And I turned around right there before you go through the toll plaza, got her to Highland Hospital, and she lived. And I was so, it was the most joyous, Experience because it was so much, you know, adrenaline and excitement. And then I remember I wrote on her birth certificate: place of birth, Five Eighty Freeway; attending <laughs> physician, Donald Lacey. And this is 1981, <laughs> and I put BD, baby's daddy. So I think I started that colloquialism. I'm just saying, cat. I wasn't saying baby's daddy in '81, but and uh, man, and she was just oh my god, just she was always at a ten of love. I mean, every person has their down days and they're sad and this and that, but she was just so, you know, it says uh, a biblical scholar told me that the name of what you give a person should describe or does describe the attributes. And that's why I gave her the name Lo Ishe, which is Igbo and Nigerian from the Igbo word Lolo to love and Ishe from the uh, Nigerian word life. And it means love life. And that's like she was just like, oh, and she was just, oh, my God. And then when she was a conflict resolution mediator, McClyman's High, where she was a student. I remember uh, I went to visit the school and um, the teacher told me, said, Mr. Lacey, your daughter, everyone loves her. She can just negotiate any squabbles or beefs, you know, be they from straight kids, gay kids, uh, trans kids, uh, uh. Pacific Islander kids, black, brown, whatever they were. And I had this great picture of her. It was some Latino kids and some black kids were having this beef and they were fighting and they came through her program. It's a picture of the the kid who was the black kid who was the leader of that clique and the brown kid who was the leader of that clique and they're holding hands and she's in the middle of them putting their hands together. And that's just, you know, that's just what her nature. So Couple of months before she was unfortunately murdered, uh, another kid who coincidentally or not James Valerie, they called him Nunu, whose birthday was on the same day as hers, January 24th, 1981 was murdered. And she was real upset. And I remember I drove up to the house and and my nieces were out there and they were crying. And and I've never been more prouder of an individual. In my life, she goes, daddy, I want to do something, daddy. I'm tired of seeing all these black kids dying. And so I said, okay, well, what do you want to do, sweetheart? She says, I want to write a play. We got to do something. We need to have, you know, peace marches. And and that's where the seeds of the Love Life Foundation was born. So uh, on that dreadful night, October 20th, when she was killed, my initial reaction was, you know, I want to get them dudes. And everybody was blowing my uh, pager up. I was up all night. I was in LA. I was at the Improv when I got the page about what had happened, and everybody. I was calling everybody I knew, and people were giving people my numbers. And these cats, I'll never forget. They, pe- I didn't know the number, but it was nine one one, and I called this dude back, and he goes, "Hey, Mister Lacey, we think we know who was involved. Just say the word, and we'll push that button." And I said, "No, wait till I get back. I'm coming back tomorrow." And then the last person I talked to in the wee hours of the morning on October 21st was my grandmother, Mother Annie Pearl Franklin, who lived a couple months shy of 102. And she said, my only grandson, what the devil meant for evil, God was going to turn to good. And right then I remembered what my daughter taught me, that she didn't want no revenge for her friend. She wanted to do something positive. So I put the word out. I said, man, don't touch them dudes. We ain't having that on my daughter's ledger of her memory. I want to establish a a, a better leg- legacy, a legacy that's the meaning of her name. And we just started, you know, we had a week before Christmas that same year, I'll never forget. Elihu Harris who was the mayor gave us the city council chambers. We were sitting at the desk that I don't think prior to that a community group had ever had, and there was like this is a week before Christmas, December 18th, uh Uh, 1997 there was like 750 people and there There was a line down so it really touched a nerve in the community and there was some of everybody there and we just started you know we didn't have money never really had any money last year and thank you by the way you have been a consistent supporter of that work I so love and appreciate you for that because you know we don't we don't have no you know full-time staff including me I work full-time plus hours but I don't get paid nor do I care to Necessarily, but you know we've been able to reach thousands of young people. You know we're and now Love Life is the official motto of Oakland. Every entering Oakland sign says Love Life, not just to honor her, but anybody. I don't care of the circumstances who's been murdered. Murder is wrong. I don't care if it's somebody in the corner of the state of California, the state of Texas, or whoever. So and now to God be the glory. We're at the Oakland Airport. When you fly into Oakland, yeah. you fly out. You see love life. So, and I owe that all to the creator uh, and my daughter's just incredible spirit. And I really believe before she came to earth, this was her script. This was her mission. And she more than fulfilled it. So I, I'm just blessed, you know, that she chose me to be her father.
0: I clocked the the love life uh, language last time I, I came home. And thought of you and smiled real big. Donna Lacey, when you see, I mean, everything we're talking about, when you you see the levels of violence that are taking place on Oakland streets right now, you know, we know that began to tick up when the economic pandemic came hot on the heels of the coronavirus pandemic. I know for me, I have so much frustration because I feel like we know what we should be doing and Mm -hmm. we continue to refuse to do so. What, it is, what is it that you think we could and should be doing that we just ain't?
1: Well, that's a great question. And I'm not going to even pretend that I know a definitive answer. But one thing I do know, and this may sound touchy-feely to other people or whatever, but it starts with love. We're dealing with people who marginalized doesn't even describe their existence. They live on the outskirts and have been excluded from everything, you know, to participate as functioning, uh, viable, and by viable, I mean having resources to put a roof over your head, to put clothes on your back, to feed yourself, your children. So to me, this is a cry. Uh, What's that quote Martin Luther King says about, quote unquote, riots, that it's the uh, people wanting to be seen? It's to the me- language
0: of the unheard.
1: Exactly. And this is what this uptick in violence is. Oh, you don't hear me? Oh, can you hear me now? Can you see me now? And we it needs to be not only a change of the system and the structure, but we need to change our con- our consciousness as human beings. Again, you know, I always tell cats that I know that are on the periphery and doing whatever they doing. I don't never talk. Hey, you know, I just always explain, well, you know, uh, you out here trying to do what you do, whatever. I'm not going to never judge. Or, but I always tell them what it was like back in the day. There was always a criminal element in Oakland. Let's not make it up like, you know, it was this panacea. But there was a certain code. People, if you had a beef, a uh, a, a beef with B, you didn't involve C, D, E and F. You dealt with A and B. Uh, I remember this famous story about. Someone told me, who I won't mention their name, but told me about some guy back in the 70s had been doing dirt and he was involving innocent people and he tried to hide at his grandmother's house and he heard they was chasing him and he was in the tub. They knocked on the door, said, excuse me, went in there and took him out. At the tub and dealt with him, whatever that meant. I don't, I'm not saying whatever they did, but I'm just saying you had to be accountable for your actions. And if you, and if you had a beef was don't involve in my daughter, wasn't killed because she was in a gang or she was, she took a ride home with somebody that got in a squabble with somebody and was in the backseat of his car and they saw his car, they were shooting at him. They involved her in something that didn't have anything to do with her. So It's a lot of the old school principles of love, of self, community, family, and all of that. And again, you know, it all started to me with the crack cocaine epidemic, which you're honest and you are very aware of. Gary Webb, rest in power, documented what the United States government did to change the trajectory of not only the black community, but the country of Nicaragua with their illegal war. Uh, where Freeway Rick didn't even know he was working for the CIA selling crack cocaine. And that changed the trajectory of the black community forever. We're still trying to pick mm-hmm. up the pieces from that, and we never will. So we got to understand these youngsters are now just out here doing that because this is what they want to do. They're trying to survive. So how do we address that? How do we include them? And how do we love them? I get a lot of respect in the community from a lot of these young black people that I work with and whatever, because I, I love them. I genuinely love them as human beings and they can sense that they know they can spot a $3 bill in a mill in a millisecond. If you come with some phony BS, you're done. So when I get in front of kids at school or in jails or in the juvenile halls and I'm talking to them, you know, I come real. I, I tell them, I tell them my story. I've been arrested when I was I I did some time in jail. I'm not ashamed to say in county jail in Fresno when I was 19 doing some crap. I had no business to it, And That's the only tattoo I have. I remind. I wrote a tat. I got a tattoo done to remind me to never go back. And thanks God, I never went back. But I get it. I get. I was acting out because my mother had had a, a nervous breakdown and was in a mental institution, and all this stuff was going on. And I was I was crying out for help. So I started, you know, stealing and doing stuff I had no business doing. So I get it. I get it. And, you know, I always tell people and they think I'm blowing smoke. I learn as much, if not more than I teach. I don't know what it's like to be a teen in 2023. Tell me, how can I support you? And for people in my my generation and under than me, you know, you got to take a more hands on approach and don't come dictating. Come with an open mind and heart and ears and Listen. That's all you got to do. They want they want help. Most of them. Some of them you can't do nothing with, to be honest. But there's a lot of them are just caught up. A lot of them are carrying firearms out of fear because, right. you know, it's not, I'm just going to go shoot up something. No, I'll never forget when our after school program, when we were at Lowell, this kid brought a broken gun with no firing pin uh, to our after school program. And I was Somewhat chastising him because he was out of order and he was picking on this girl. And then I took him out in the hallway and he pulled the gun on me and I could look and see out the corner of my eye. He had it almost to my temple that it didn't have a firing pin or it was effect wasn't going to work. So I pushed the gun away. I grabbed him, put him up against the Like I said, hey, man, don't you ever pull no gun on me or anybody, else. especially one. Of the, and he goes, Mr. Lacey, I'm scared. Everybody else got a gun. I got to at least act like I can protect myself. Now, what does that say about, and this was in what, 2002, 2003. So that's been ratcheted up, you know, 20,000 times since then. So there's a lot of fear. Uh, There's a lot of uh, desire to be wanted, to be loved. A lot of these youngsters come from broken homes. You know, a lot of the parents have issues. So there's a lot that they're dealing with. And I have the utmost respect. I, I, I wasn't no punk growing up as a kid, but I don't know if I was a, a kid now, I could survive with all the pressure that they're subjected to. I, I'm just being brutally honest. So I, I have mad respect for the majority. And part of the problem, cat too, is the media is culpable, the the mainstream media, because when you turn on the news, all you hear about is murder, mayhem, this, that, da, 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 da. And it becomes the perception. That's all these youth are about. But no, you know, that's a small, small percentage of our black youth population. But you never want to talk about the other 98 to 99% who are out here doing heroic and heroic work. What about covering them? You know what I mean? I, I have to, I, we had a media accountability forum with, with your friend of mine, David D, years ago. We did a city hall And we, you know, we got some of the station managers from Kron and KTVU, who was a big culprit of this back in the day, and told them, hey, man, you need to start changing the perception of what our community is about. You know, talk about the Dorothy Kings rest in power who are doing stuff and feeding homeless people every night and stuff like that, because, you know— after a while, everybody, it gives the, it almost gives the law enforcement license that, well, they're all criminals, so we got to treat them a certain way. I beg That's to right. differ.
0: That's right. Donna. we have just uh, about 90 seconds left. I one if you just give us a little a uh, little synopsis of the play that you are currently in with the amazing Margot Hall and directed by the phenomenal I Would Give My Left Arm to be directed by Ellen Sebastian Chang. I'm praying it will happen uh, in my <laughs> lifetime.
1: <laughs> what, what are you all up to? Well, I hope you can come see this. This is all about Black women empowerment. And I, Margot and I are brother and sister. We've worked together, so I've had the pleasure to share stage with her and this may be the role of her life. She is so powerful. We were in rehearsal and I just started crying and I thought, wow, is this me crying or my character? And I realized, because I play her brother. It was the character, but that's how amazing and raw and open. But it's a beautiful place. Star Finch is a genius. And uh, this is the second time I've got to work with Ellen. And like you for years, I was like, Ellen, I want to rub
0: with it you. in. No, no, I'm just saying <laughs> I was like, Ellen, I
1: want to work with you. Please, Ellen, please. And finally, we did Candlestick over there with Santo, my company. And then this opportunity and she well, you know her. She's just a one of my favorite people on the earth. And you will get that opportunity. I guarantee you because she's just divine. Folks got to come magic org, and wow. It's for everybody, but black women, this is your show. All right.
0: Y'all, you're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Cap Brooks. This week's Resistance in Residence artist is actor, comedian, radio host, director, playwright, and social justice warrior, Donald Lacey. Donald, thank you so much for coming on I
1: show. love you so much, oh, and let's I get together you. soon. I need one of them big Cap Brooks hugs.
0: Yes, sir. Let's put <laughs> it on the agenda. <laughs>
1: You've
0: been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. Law and Disorders produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and posted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox Five. Our Resistance and Residence theme music was composed by Jesse Strauss. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis. And subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.